0: Howdy, y'all. Samson Folk here with the Raptors Weekly Podcast or the definitive whatever draft podcast. We're in draft season and it's not really coming out weekly. There's been like four podcasts this week. So I don't know what to call it, but I think they're good. I think they've been good. So that's great. And today's episode, I think, will also be great. It's with somebody who had a dream of being known as a guy who, A, likes basketball and B is from Canada, and thus created a pseudonym known as Hoop Goose, two things that can be associated with his interests. And he has collected himself quite a hoop gaggle. Yeah, fans, onlookers who, who say, this guy knows his stuff, and I'm excited for them to listen, to get their feedback. It's his second time on Hoop Goose. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Samson, for the amazing uh, introduction. <laughs> that that was just flying by the seat of my pants. I just wanted to make sure I got hoop gaggle in there. Yep. I know I know Evan's gonna love that uh friend of the pod. <laughs> and admittedly part of the hoop the hoop gaggle. He is, yeah. Okay, so first thing we're gonna talk about is we're gonna touch on the big three. That's Jalen Green, Jalen Suggs, Evan Mobley. All of this stuff will be covered at length in the quote-unquote definitive podcast attached to each of those names. The Evan Mobley and Jalen Green episodes are out right now. Jalen Suggs will be out later this week. Uh, The aforementioned two podcasts have like thousands and thousands of listens. I'm extremely happy with how people have responded to them. So if you haven't listened to them yet, rave reviews, uh, go do so. Suggs coming later. But today we're going to touch on those for just a bit. We're going to talk about archetypes, what type of players we're looking for. Not as, basically not really as a drafting process because we're not the Raptors, but just trying to identify players by how they might contribute at the next level. And we'll be talking about mostly second round guys. And then lastly, although we agree on many, many things, there appears to be disparity in how we view Pascal Siakam between myself and Goose. And so we'll be having a little bit of a debate on the dialogue around trading him. How does all of that sound to you? It sounds amazing. It's uh, we're starting off a little slow, and then we got major beef at the end. Yeah, <laughs> big beef. <laughs> huge, huge, huge disagreements. Okay, I, I so have a
1: steel chair here,
0: just in case. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Yeah, um, yeah. So let's let's kick it off. Who who do you want to start with as far as the the big three? I'll start with my favorite, which is Evan Mobley. Okay. So uh, you you already covered Evan Mobley,
1: but like just as like a general thing, he's this extremely talented big man who can pretty much do everything. And you're looking at maybe even generational defender. Mm-hmm. Rim protection is amazing. He can switch out onto the perimeter if you want. You can read the floor, and then offensively, which is where I think. Uh, most Raptors fans is that's where they kind of have a little bit of hesitation, right? Like, oh, he's not that guy. Well, I think the conversation around that guy is pretty tough one, and I think we'll touch on this a bit more later. Try to keep you interested, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think he can be a pretty big
0: part of a championship team, even if he's not Kobe Bryant per se. Oh yeah that that was basically that was Ben's sentiment was that he could be the second best player on a championship team by the end of his rookie scale contract. And that's a hell of an endorsement. But when terms like generational are thrown around and the Raptors have always, almost always employed players who their impact metrics uh, far outpace their reputation and Mobley, a guy who makes his, his bread on the defensive end and we'll have to see what happens offensively. Although, you know, there's, there's a very good base to work from there. He has the the potential to be that type of player. As far as the conversation around him, is he like the objective number two to you? Because that's basically some people talk about fit and, you know, maybe it's people who like Mobley and want to convince themselves that he's going to be there at four for the Raptors. But I think a lot of the smartest people I talk to have him as like a one B rather than an interchangeable between two and four.
1: Yeah. I think I would land there too. I just, I just think he's a step above the other guys just in terms of how good he projects to
0: be, but you know, it's the draft. We're all wrong all the time. So. (laughs) Oh yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and just judging by reading the tea leaves. I assume that you're a little bit lower on Jalen green than perhaps some other people have begun To start rating him because he his his stock has started to raise quite a bit and I think it has to do with the correlation of shot making in the playoffs and not only his archetype but his body type and the uh the aesthetic of his game you watch guys coming downhill pulling up and being kind of slinky to get to their spots Mm. you imagine him just plugging in and do you think that's led to Because, you know, tell us how you feel. But do you think that's led to anybody maybe overrating how he might be able to affect things at the NBA level? I think this is a really interesting conversation.
1: And it kind of shows how the draft process goes because now I'm the guy who's low on Jalen Green. But like (laughs) four or five months ago, I was the guy who was high on him. So (laughs) it's it's really interesting how uh, opinions can change just, without really anything changing like he's still the same guy he was like four Mm -hmm. months ago so the thing I think is being a bit maybe overstated with him is uh his half court ability because I see a lot of uh very interesting comparisons thrown around uh number one would be Kobe Bryant and I think that's kind of setting up for a pretty high standard right like (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't think that's fair for anyone but uh I think if you go back and you look at how he plays, his half-court game is not – it's not that developed yet. There's not – I think the safety in it is kind of being overrated. Like, he shot really well, uh, way better than anyone expected. And I'm not one of the guys that are uh, deep, deep into high school basketball. But the ones that were weren't too high on him because, A, his shot was always a bit inconsistent. And two, he's always, for a guy that's as athletic as him, he struggles to take, to get to the rim basically on his own. In high school, he could barely uh, do it without a screen. And I think in the G League, you saw a lot of similarness where uh, there's a famous one where you got locked up by a uh, carrot top or, uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, the uh, Warriors. Uh, point guard whose name escapes nico 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 manion the italian stallion yeah (laughs) because uh his dribbling is not where it needs to be to be that half court guy right now and so right now i think of Jalen green really similar to how the raptors have used norman powell recently and i think that guy is undoubtedly a really useful player but i would put the brakes on him being this number one option MVP type scorer, because I think he can be that maybe, but I think to expect that from him immediately is pretty
0: too close to the stars, you know? I think the, the first point you made very salient is that the, a lot of times these guys aren't changing at all. People are just seeing more of them that yeah. was already there or the context of the league especially lately has just been ever shifting. And I think the really interesting thing is that you don't even have to compare Jalen green to Kobe Bryant to expect him to be a high level shot maker at the next level. I am somebody who genuinely, I thought during the regular season, Mike Conley was better than Donovan Mitchell and Donovan Mitchell for the way that he plays. He is far more valuable in a playoff setting because he achieves very little of the low-hanging fruit of the regular season. Raptors fans should know it that DeMar DeRozan takes the regular season pick and roll and ratchets ratchets it up to 100, and he's very good at it, and it effectively changes as soon as you hit the postseason. The context of the postseason does put pressure on certain players, certain archetypes, and does kind of loosen up and open up for others. So Jalen Green, to be valuable in the nba context doesn't have to be kobe bryant he just has a skill set that should translate to quote unquote the most important type of basketball there is which is the playoff type i think that's the the really optimistic version of looking at jalen green and then as far as you know being being lower on him and saying like hey it's not all there yet sure he scores but he's like how much of it is off of assists, how much is coming against a tilted defense or coming out of second side action. That's all super valid stuff. And concerns. I mean, you're always going to look pretty smart if you just stick with the concerns and say, I'm happy if he proves me wrong. Like that's, that's a really safe bet to do. And a lot of really smart people do that. So I I understand that take as well. He's a really interesting prospect and how he fits into the, The changing league, I think, is very interesting as well. But, okay, Jalen Suggs. I guess, well, first thing is, would you be that disappointed with either of them then? Because I think there's kind of a growing sentiment that Suggs is the weakest of the four at the top. But maybe you're closer to thinking that the Raptors could end up getting the third best prospect or somewhere close to that. I'm putting words in your mouth, so feel free to just ignore everything I'm saying. But what do you think about Suggs? Oh, I I really like Suggs, and uh, but despite my uh, quote unquote
1: hating on Green, I think I'd slightly <laughs> prefer him to Suggs. It's just that I think Suggs is being a little I don't know the word is maybe overthought right now because there's a lot to like there, and I think people are just kind of getting lower on him for uh, I don't really understand why. Like I look at Suggs. And you look at a guy who's a really good athlete. He's not amazing like Jalen Green, right? But I think you look at Suggs and you say, yeah, he's a above average athlete for a point guard. Maybe a little bit better than above average. He's really fast. The burst is really, it's like, he's really quick. And then I think what's being underrated with him is how many guys can you think of that are plus athletes and have really good feel for the game and aren't good players? Because that's, the baseline for Suggs is that he's extremely quick. He can read the game really quickly, and he's got a bit of a—I don't know—a bit of a ballsiness. <laughs> I don't know if you see him uh, the some of the highlights or whatever for the listeners, but uh, he'll throw some uh, choice passes that work more often than not. And then on defense, he's a bit of a gambler, but again, it works more often than not. And I think the one thing that's being most underrated with Suggs is that. Yeah, he has uh, some handle concerns, and I think people look at the three-point percentage and they're like, oh, he can't shoot. But I think there's a very interesting case of a pull-up three being there, and not even just a normal one, but like a really deep one. Because Suggs, I really like his shot motion, and if you watch him, he has some really deep range. I think it's because he's kind of a stronger guy which is uh, which comes back to bite him sometimes because uh, when he gets tired, he just kind of chucks up the ball and forgets to use his legs. But if you look at it in totality, with the burst that Suggs has combined with a pull-up three, the handle doesn't have to be Kyrie Irving, right? Like he can get by on a just a decent handle. And you're talking about a really good half-court player and a really good transition player and a really good defender. So I don't see why he can't be a franchise guy just like Jalen Green can.
0: And that's my rant. <laughs> I, I, th- I think that's really fair. Basically, the, the biggest disparity I see between the people who are thinking really hard about Suggs versus Green is primary versus connector. And I know you've seen that floated around too. And yeah. I think a lot of people are leaning towards primary for Green eventually. But I think the belief is that Suggs will always be connector and yeah but that's the thing too he's a very good connector already like I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up on the Raptors if it's a rookie of the year I really like even though Cade is going to have the ball a lot in Detroit even though Mobley if he goes to Houston or Cleveland will probably have a really good year maybe Green puts up numbers you know but Jalen Suggs in the Raptors defense probably going to rack up a really high steal percentage He's probably going to get out in transition a lot. And if it's working off of one of Pascal, Kyle, Fred, whoever, being a connector actually does help a lot next to those guys because especially during the regular season, the primary stuff is less of a concern than we've seen in the playoffs where basically it just came down to Kyle Lowry. So I think like Jalen sucks, he'll be very good. But I think the primary versus connecting players, the big thing. But that's something that... Jackson, Frank, and I will get into, like, to a, a ridiculous degree. I think we'll talk about it uh, yeah. very in-depth. So are you ready to do archetypes, Goose? Yes, sir, uh, Do you want to start? or? Uh... Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll highlight uh, what archetypes we're going to do, and I'll kind of tee us up. So what we saw with the Raptors this past year was a team that overloaded the back end of the rotation with similar players. DeAndre Bembry, Stanley Johnson, Yuta Watanabe, all guys who were plus defenders. And it it was a different level, and they had different strengths defensively, but they were all plus defenders. They were all really dependent on the three-point shot going down. Yuta Watanabe, the least dependent. Stanley Johnson, the most dependent. But they were being told to fit into that 3 and D archetype. And because the 3-nd archetype was, has been so fetishized in the NBA, no dribble, just threes in defense, just vibes, right? The Raptors were just stockpiling those types of guys on the bench and just asking one of them to hit. But they've been hitting on those guys for years already that the, there just wasn't a lot of diversity as far as how they've been growing players and then the guys they bring up from the 905, for example. So it seems like it would be good to bring on a different type of archetype and try and grow them. So combo guards, second round, what do you have in mind? I think think one that's already
1: kind of a fan favorite with the Raptors, but uh, maybe has risen up too much, is uh, Bones Highland, which uh, I don't know if you've heard of him, but for the Mm -hmm. listeners that haven't, he's this uh, shooting demon combo guard that has uh he'll just pull up from anywhere really, but most of his value is being this off ball emmanuel quickly type shoot uh yeah combo guard who just fits into the the offense he can take a tough shot, he can create his own shot uh you run him off the line he can finish at the at the cup the defense is not really there yet, neither is the passing you don't want him to be initiating but I think if you're looking at second round guys and you're looking at like, oh, well, we're going to have Malachi Flynn on the floor. We're going to have Pascal on the floor. We're going to have uh, some somebody else to start the offense. And then the ball swings to Bones. He can take a tough shot. He can be that late clock guy. Or you can run some actions to get him three-point looks. And I think it looks pretty good, especially right now where we're seeing
0: the value of pull-up threes just skyrocket. Yeah, that's my Bones take. That's good because I talked about bones with PD as well. And he was also very high on bones. And as you acknowledged, like maybe he's getting a little bit too high that he won't even be around for the Raptors. When the, the second round picks come, it would yeah. be really cool if he did. I do really like the Emmanuel quickly comp just as like a frame of reference to say this guy, because when I think of the quickly, I think of a guy who can jab step and get around a closeout yeah. and, the ball won't be trapped in his hands and you don't have to reset if it's there with like seven seconds left, he'll find his way to a jump shot and his shot making will be at an adequate level that you feel good about that, that the ball won't be a waste when it ends up in his hands. If it's not the highest level of created shot, for example, like there's, there's metrics to weigh what type of shots you're creating for teammates. Pascal Siakam was really high in that metric, especially out of the post, but the shot making off of Pascal's passes this past year was not very high. And Fred Van Vliet, for example, creates lower value, but he does it in a very high volume. And that's where guys like Bones, I think, could plug in because they just need to get a little bit of an advantage to get like downhill, to get into space, to make other teams pay. Whereas the DeAndre Bembry's or Stanley Johnson's or Yuda's, you really had to serve them shots on a golden platter. And that, made the Raptors offense kind of, well, you, you saw it. We all saw it. It was drought heavy. heavy but uh, any, any other guys as far as combo guard, second round? A guy that might be in our range is uh, David Johnson, who uh, before
1: before the season, he was projected as a top 20 guy. Uh, he just kind of fell as others rose. And the strength of him is that he is, he is like 6'5". He has like a plus, he has a plus wingspan. He's a good defender. He can shoot spot ups. He's not a guy you really want taking pull ups. and uh, He can run a second side pick and roll for you. And he does all these things at a fairly high level. The thing that he won't do is be like a guy who's running a pick and roll, getting all the way to the rim or pulling up off a pick and roll. So you don't want him to be leading a unit, but say you can play him next to Malachi Flynn. You can play him next to uh, Fred Van Vliet. You can play him next to Malachi Flynn and Fred Van Vliet with, is I think the direction that the league might be going is just getting as many guards or guard adjacents as possible in a lineup. I know the Spurs have kind of been doing this, which is something that fascinates me. But if you're trying to do that, if you're trying to play like two or three guards, I think David Johnson is a good bet to be one of those.
0: I think my three favorite teams to watch this year were the Spurs, the Hornets, and the Nets. Basically, you have a lot of guard... Skills on the floor at all times. And the Nets, the best of that because they had size and guard skills, and then just unbelievably prolific shooting. The Spurs, maybe the most interesting because they had like a Walker, White, DeRozan, Keldon Johnson, a bunch of guys who are imperfect in their application. And DeJounte, of course, imperfect in their application, but very intriguing nonetheless, and finding advantages, of course. And then the Hornets with Ball, Rosier, Devontae, and Gordon Hayward. And then, like, the Martin twins and stuff like that can kind of plug in. And Malik Monk, Monk of course. The guy. Yeah. yeah. Malik. <laughs> Free Malik. Free Malik. Free Malik. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I do really like that. Do you, do you have any other guys in mind? Oh, yeah. There's there's a lot of combo guards every year. Oh, yeah. Hit me, brother.
1: Because you're looking at, like, the shortest people, right? So you're gonna have the most guards. Like, like you, you have a uh, Quentin Grimes who is also he's had a bit of a rocky college career, but he's ended up in a pretty good spot. He's also like six six, big wingspan. He had a great shooting year. And I know, not everybody buys the shot though. Friend of the pod probably, PD Webb doesn't buy it, but some of his uh, adjacents do. So that's kind of questionable. Is that can he actually shoot? But if he can, he's a really good guy to have being your uh, second or third guard in the lineup. And then there's uh, Deuce McBride, which is an elite name, really. You should just draft, yeah. <laughs> draft him draft him for being called Deuce McBride, who's a really strong on-ball defender. He has a bit of a pull-up game. Is kind of similar to Bones, just leans towards more being an on-ball defender and less of a strong pull-up guy. Uh, the issues with him are... You know, combo guardy stuff. You don't want him being Mr. Pick and Roll. Uh, The off-ball defense, maybe not what you want to see right now, but with young players, you know, you kind of have – especially in the second round, you can't be too picky. And then this one is not a combo guard. It's uh, Dacian Nix from the Ignite. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the listeners have caught some uh, 905 games, but if you did, you would have seen him. And he's just this extremely thick – very strong point guard. He's more in the traditional mold. The reason I find him interesting for the Raptors is that uh, he didn't have a single assisted field goal at the rim. So through the whole G League season, which admittedly wasn't that long, it was like a couple games, maybe like a little bit more than 10. He didn't have a single assisted field goal at the rim. So he was actually the best rim pressure guy on the Ignite better than green better than uh Kuminga and he's a really good passer the problem with him is that the scoring is very questionable uh it's low to the ground the, the the shot isn't there yet but this is intriguing if you want to bet on a big like he's big he's like 6-5 built like a football player guy who can get to the rim at will
0: and then kind of figure out what else happens there so when we talked about D'Angelo Daishin- Uh, When PD was on, he framed it as, you know, his season was bad for his stock, but could have been good for how he'll translate to the NBA. Do you agree with that or do you understand that framing?
1: Yeah, I understand that framing. I think he was uh, projected to be a first round guy and now he might go undrafted because he did not have a good combine performance. For a guy that you want playing off of others, like like Nick's did in the Ignite, where he was playing off of uh, Raptors legend Jared Jack or the, uh, <laughs> uh, uh Green and Kuminga, is that those are the kind of lineups he would play in
0: on an NBA team. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Let's do. Can we do non-stretch bigs? Because I think that's a really interesting archetype. For example, Beef Stew, Isaiah Stewart last year seemed like a guy primed to bring value and to be picked later perhaps than he should. And he had a really good rookie season. And I think it's because he doesn't package the sexy aspects of the NBA in his game. He's just constantly doing the heavy lifting and all the underrepresented skills. So are there guys you think, they don't have to be the beef stew mold, but non-stretch bigs, real grinders, who do you like? There's a lot of bigs in the second. I think one guy we can keep an eye
1: on is uh, Aaron Sharp out of uh, UNC. Uh, his stock has not gone well for him. Just off playing off a tough team. But defensively, he's pretty interesting because he's a guy that might excel at multiple coverages versus just being really good at one. So instead of just being a drop guy, he's a guy who can uh, drop a little. He can... Uh, he can play above the screen. He can play uh, maybe blitz a little, uh, kind of similar to Wendell Carter, mm. now in Orlando, and just having a versatile defender. Uh, he's a really good passer for a big.
0: That's my main fascination. Is that I just love bigs who can make decisions. Have you seen uh, Have you seen a lot of his pick and roll possessions defensively? I've seen a bit, yeah. What's what what is what does he give up most often? Because you know some guys they can they can be really affecting to the on ball guy, but they can surrender whether it's, you know, by the way they're placing their foot or how they're opening their hips, the the pass over top and stuff like that. What's what's his biggest strength and weakness, do you think? I think the biggest strength would be uh containing the ball handler. And then mm. the thing
1: with him is that he's not too big, so you're not gonna be really shutting down the paint with him you know which is why i'm not extremely high on him like i think he's an nba guy probably but is he going to be a starter or is he going to be more in the uh fringe starter type mold is the big question with him isn't the defense really it's the offense because he didn't shoot any threes uh he didn't have a good time at the free throw line uh and he was a pretty poor finisher. But this is on the team with bad spacing and, like, not really any great guards. So you hope in the NBA he can be kind of maybe even Mark Gasolish where he's not giving you much in terms
0: of scoring. But, hey, maybe the passing and the defense kind of makes up for it. Okay. And as far as do you think he has a, a swing skill at all? Or do you think it's just you need a composite average of a bunch of things to kind of bump up? I think of the shooting,
1: I don't think it's hopeless. Like, the form is good. The touch isn't terrible. Like, maybe in a couple of years he can shoot. But, yeah, the, the thing for him is just being able to be okay offensively, just enough to be, like, that defensive rotation big, right? Because I think in the second round, you're not really looking for uh, stars as much as you're looking for guys that just stick. It's, it's very rare that you'll find a guy that's, like, an
0: above-average player. Yeah, if, if you find a guy that you can pay above the minimum in the second round, I think you're really happy. And then anything above that, you start becoming really, really pleased with what you have there. So yeah, that's a that's a good point. Any maybe, other non-stretch bigs? Maybe
1: an MVP. Yeah. <laughs> there's some interesting uh there's some interesting bigs just in the international leagues that are just like these freak athletes that haven't really been able to uh, produce in like these like second second division type leagues like uh even Baji from uh from fc barcelona is very interesting because he is huge like seven one he moves extremely well he can he has some of the quickest jumping that you'll ever see from a seven one guy but he just hasn't been productive at that level. So you're really taking a risk just bringing him into the NBA and it's really just a bet on all the physical skills. Skills, So if you want to bring in a guy that you think maybe can uh, be a center version of Bruno maybe <laughs> and uh, bet on the uh, physical skills translating
0: into a, into a guy that you can look at a guy like him. Okay. So let's talk about another Brazilian former Raptor then. Lucas Nogueira, Bebe. Is there anybody who fits his archetype? Because it's almost exclusively his archetype. I can't think of – like, are
1: there any NBA players that are uh, Bebe's?
0: Hmm. Uh, Like, maybe Thad from this year is a little – like, he he has some Bebe in him, but he's also too advanced in other areas. Who's, like – who's the greatest short-roll passer right now? It's, well, it's Draymond. It's Draymond, probably. But Draymond, like, it would be a disservice to Draymond to compare him to <laughs> Bebe. Bebe. Yeah, it's not uh, nice. Yeah, all this does is make me incredibly sad that Bebe didn't get to play until he was 39. Like, he should have been able to just run pick and rolls, have that huge catch radius coming down the middle, and then pick apart defenses until until his knees left him. Like, that's what it should have been, right?
1: Yeah. He he has a really
0: optimal skill set for today's game,
1: really. Mm-hmm. It's just about... I don't know. It just never completely translated for him, which is kind of sad, but
0: I think he had everything you needed to be, a, like, a good NBA player. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised he didn't find a team that really made it work with him, but... Alcyon days. Uh stretch bigs. You wanna talk stretch bigs? Ah sure. One of uh one of my one of my favorites is uh, Matthew
1: Hurt from Duke, which is uh he has a cool name, but <laughs> he doesn't get a lot of love because he's like this like frail, tall, skinny white dude. But he can really shoot it. And he's not like a motion shooter type he's like uh he's like a big man shooter right so he'll be like uh he actually shoots a lot like boucher does with the trebuchet type thing but it's not as Trey trebuchet e it's my terrible pun for the day uh but the thing with him is that he can self-create a bit so he's kind of similar to like a a discount gallo maybe he's like you have him stand on the perimeter or you can make shots from there or you can uh You have him post up, and he has this, like, he has this Dirk one-legged fadeaway game down. Like, he dropped 40 on the team this year just off that and off threes. And I think he's being a little underrated as – because it's hard to find shooters that can also create for themselves. And physically, I think he can hold up in the NBA. So – but he's not going to be a plus defender. So off-bench units being discount Gallo, I think, could be really useful to a team, especially like the Raptors, because we talked about how that the, the fifth guys they had weren't really able to be shot makers or guys who can maybe finish
0: off suboptimal looks. That's a guy who can fit in and do that. That's always what I appreciated. Like When I think of a guy whose game isn't perfect and doesn't fit all the things you'd want. Like Doug McDermott is that he'll shoot it and he's a good enough shooter that he can make you pay and he can provide some value regardless. And his craft, as far as moving off ball has really developed in the NBA, but he has to shoot it. And that's like the big thing that I I wonder if you have the answer, like Matthew hurt. Is he 100%? He gets to the league. He's going to shoot the hell out of the ball. Because sometimes guys just don't translate, and for whatever reason, the, the speed of the NBA, the physicality to get anywhere else on the court, just everything like that, it makes you so uncomfortable and changes the context of how you shoot. Matthew Hurt, this guy's a shooter shooter. Yep, he can shoot the leather off the ball. The uh,
1: The question with him is maybe his range won't be too deep because he's a two-motion type shooter. Mm-hmm. But- that, that's what lets him kind of create his shot a little bit in the mid-range area. So I think it's a worthy trade-off and uh, it'd be a, it'd be a nice bet in the second round is just trying to get a guy who can capitalize off these advantages that the other Raptors make.
0: Okay. And uh, do you have any other stretch bigs that you're kind of looking at? There's a really interesting one who's very Raptors-y. His name is uh, EJ
1: Onu. He actually didn't even play in the NCAA, he played in the NA, the National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics. And then he's uh, recently had a run from the G League Combine to the NBA Combine just based off his ridiculous wingspan, which is like, he's like 6'11 in shoes and he has a 7'8 wingspan, which is uh, very interesting. And on top of that, he's a 40% shooter on volume which is what caught everyone's attention, I suppose. So he is very similar to a lot of uh, guys that the Raptors like for the 905, just because of being not a traditional guy, just coming in like, they seem to really like guys who come off the beaten path and put some investment in them. So that's, Onu is a guy who's comes off like a weird development path, but he's got tools and he can shoot
0: and you just kind of hope he can do everything else. He's he sounds like a database guy, where yeah. you're just you're just looking for outstanding markers, and he pops up, and then you start looking deeper, especially if he's from NAIa. But that's the the nine hundred five is littered with guys like that. So yeah, nice pull. I like that a lot, and also shoots the leather off the ball. Haven't heard it in a while. Really like that. That colloquial, colloquialism is is top tier. A very old school one, but. Uh, I like it too. You're you're an old soul, goose. Old soul. Yeah, I get that. I get that from you. Okay, uh, wing shooters, and hopefully they shoot the leather off the ball too. But who do you have in mind for wing shooters? Oh, my favorite one is probably Sam Hauser,
1: which is a, it's a very Sam Sam type podcast. But he is a, <laughs> he's a six eight, uh, plus wingspan. It's nothing like. I think it's 6'10", wingspan, and he's a really good shooter. Like, he's probably the best shooter in the draft. Like, off the top of my head, I would say that he is, just because unlike a guy like uh, Corey Kispert, who does a lot of his shooting uh, in standstill positions, Hauser is a guy who does most of his off movement. So he's a guy that maybe you can use him, like, running off a double drag, and then he catches the ball and immediately fires it up.
0: How, How long have you been doing draft stuff? Not that long, like 2017, maybe 2018. Okay, that's, that's definitely enough for this question. The best shooter in the draft, have, you, have they always translated? No. Since, since you've been looking at it? Okay. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes, because I think what people underrate about shooting is that the amount of
1: athleticism you need mm-hmm. to get a shot off in the NBA. I think Matt Thomas is a good good one because Matt Thomas is a really good shooter I don't think anybody would disagree with that but the thing with him that separates him from J.J. Redick is that Matt Thomas was just always a step too slow off these actions where by the time he got a shot off it would be contested whereas J.J. he would have gone it right off by then and I think it was either the speed or the physicality that Matt couldn't fully translate but I think with Hauser that he's not like a small guy He's like 6'8", positive wingspan. He's not as quick as maybe a Duncan Robinson is. But I think there's enough to take a chance on him and hope that, you know, he can be that shooter guy because these guys are extremely valuable in just any type of matchup, right? Where you have like a motion shooter who can really get the
0: defense in chaos. How do you feel about Nick Nurse utilizing a guy like that? Not great. But- <laughs> My thing
1: with Nick Nurse is that I don't know how much you guys get to watch his uh post-game stuff, but whenever he's asked the question about offense, he says it'll take care of himself or take care of itself. But I feel like that's not a good way to approach things. Like I'm pretty sure he just lets, lets uh Kyle and Fred make most of the decisions there, which is fine, but it's not optimal. And I don't think I don't want to go into a whole Nick Nurse rant here, but I don't think he's
0: done a great job with the offense in his time here. I, I, you know, I'm on the, on the, well, we're in the same boat as far as offense goes with Nick Nurse. I thought, and yeah, last year I thought when they tried to implement stuff, it was largely successful and it made you wonder why there isn't more implementation. And then you go to the opposite side of things where Nate Bjorkren went to the the Pacers and it was kind of like always a hat on a hat. Like there's way too much going on. Uh, something that uh, Evan Gualberto and I talked about with Caitlin Cooper. Like there's sometimes you just need to take the advantage that's being created. That's what Indiana was doing. Whereas the Raptors are like, we're, we're going to take the same advantage over and over. And it's not even much of an advantage. And we're not even going to run a bunch of stuff to create that. We're just going to, they, they really were comfortable with supplementing their offense with transition and just relying on defense. And it's tough because we're not in practice and we don't see what's working or not working. Like a Pascal a Pascal Siakam pick and roll that returns like great numbers on a points per possession basis might just be an absolute train wreck every time they run it in practice for whatever reason. And then I would understand why Nick Nurse would be hesitant To let them run it in game, but when it's returning such positive results in game, it's tough to turn your nose up at that. And that's yeah, coaches. It's so hard to evaluate, but I think that Nick Nurse they could use a little bit more ingenuity offensively. And yeah, that's something I really wonder about. And will come up when we debate the Pascal stuff. I'm sure. So that that could be really interesting. Uh, Other wing shooters, who do you like? Another one
1: that I've talked about before on Twitter is uh, Marcus Bagley, who is uh, the brother of the uh, famous Marvin Bagley. <laughs> but he plays a quite different game. He's a uh, pretty athletic himself. He can, But it doesn't really translate to the court too much because he's not a guy who can dribble too much. But the interesting thing with him is that he's a big wing, like 6'8 positive wingspan. You know the spiel with uh, – he can shoot, and he's a really he's been coached really well because when you watch him, his shot prep is often like just perfect like he's got everything aligned he's ready to go whenever he gets the ball He just didn't shoot that well before his injury and then he kind of just has he's had like an up and down off the court st- stuff going on since then, but yeah he's a guy who's young athletic can shoot and he showed off some shooting versatility too he's not a guy who can just stand in the corner and is going to shoot. He's a guy who can move around a bit, maybe take like a one-dribble pull-up sometimes, which is always a guy that may be
0: worth betting on. Okay. And of everybody we've named, the Raptors have two second-round picks. Who are your top two?
1: It would be really dependent on who uh, number four is because I think, like, if I'm drafting Evan Mobley, I'm probably not drafting another big two, right?
0: But Yeah, Cam is probably staying. Yeah. And Freddie will get a shot out of camp for sure. Yeah. So if we get Evan Mobley, then, yeah, I'm not taking any bigs. I'm just
1: going to take the, the guards and the, the shooters. If we get any of the other two, I think it's interesting because I think you should take Suggs. You don't need as much playmaking from your combo guard, so maybe you lean more towards the shooter. But if you take Green, I think you could use the uh, the extra ball handling and the extra the extra passing. So I would lean more towards the passers. But the top two of just guys, I think that'll translate to the league the best would be Bones and Hauser, because I am really high on the value of three point shooting right now, and those two are the guys I think can be the biggest
0: difference makers in that area okay excellent excellent it would be really interesting to get uh green and nicks that would be something yes um okay uh is there any other guys you want to touch on before we get into uh the debate oh uh, not really i think we can we can start <laughs> okay and, <laughs> and listeners i goose and i talk a lot we're, we're constantly entrenched in conversation and and with other people too. And I got to tell you, we almost always end up on the exact same side and we express extremely similar sentiments. So this is rare. You're privy to some, some unique disagreements here. So, okay. Pascal Siakam, there have been rumored yes. trades for him. Yes. Most famously is the Golden State... Number Seven and Wiseman correct is that is that what we're looking for plus Wiggins yeah, I think maybe fourteen I'm not quite clear on that but I, I don't think that was uh the i don't think that was what was pitched okay. at least at least the the fourteen I think is an addendum that Raptors fans have made, but I oh. don't think that's what was leaked I
1: see yeah well it's been the uh the gossip at the uh, NBA combine is some version of this deal. Uh, I'm not really privy to the conversation that happened there, but uh, the people that do have been reporting this as more of like, uh, it's less of
0: a, like, oh, this is going to happen. It's more of a,
1: hey, maybe, you don't know.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, for example, Nikaias he put a Fred Van Vleek Colin Sexton trade in one of his pieces, but... Uh, People aren't aggregating Nakayas. So that's like, it's it's just a guy saying, hey, this is interesting and we'll actually be discussing. You came up with some hypothetical trades that we'll discuss with Sexton and Siakam. But basically what this is, is a difference of opinion on Siakam's value, team building in the NBA currently, and we're using Siakam and this trade situation as the vehicle to get there and so we'll start off by saying i am pro keep siakam goose is pro trade siakam and if you'll agree with me when i say i am not anti trade siakam if it was a ridiculously good trade but i believe currently that he is at his lowest possible value being that he tore his labrum he just had a A season that, while it was much better than most people think, the sentiment around him has soured to the point where big names and media are discussing him as a distressed asset at a max contract. So all that considered, I don't think he can achieve the commensurate return that the Raptors would be owed. I think that would be very difficult to get. And I also think it muddies the timeline and I know everybody's been saying timeline relative to OKC is kind of a meme, but I think it muddies the timeline and how the Raptors have orchestrated their current contracts. I think it's almost impossible to maximize the current situation by trading Siakam with reasonable trades in mind. So that's my opening statement. Now you go right ahead. Right. So I want to start off by saying that I'm not saying
1: that Siakam is trash or he's bad or anything. I think. Right, totally. Yeah, I think Samson and I probably have a pretty close value of just how good Siakam is. I think it's more the disagreement is, do you keep him? And the interesting question here is, in terms of roster building is, well, what's interesting to me is that I think you should always be looking for that guy, right? The, uh, the superstar, the uh, all-NBA guy, the... Uh, The guy who's going to lead you to, I don't know, the promised land. Right. And Siakam is a very good player. In fact, uh, we can even start off by just talking about how much of an underrated season he's had. Because I know you wrote a really good article about it. So I don't know if you want to talk about it a bit. But I think it's kind of gone under the weather, just how good Pascal was this season. Yeah, especially offensively.
0: Okay, so let's let's do the... Let's lay out how we evaluate Siakam currently, and then we'll go from there. Okay, so Pascal, to me, is a player I think that is, and this is probably our biggest disagreement relative to this conversation. I believe that Pascal is closer to all NBA than he is to not all-star level. If that makes sense for a frame of reference, I believe that his talent and his ability to defend a lot of positions, not only in meaningless games in the regular season, but in a way that he was one of the highest value defenders in the playoffs, the playoffs that everybody said were terrible for him. He really graded out as a monstrously effective defender. And that was while he struggled offensively. So even in his struggles, he's going to bring you in that context, extremely valuable defense offensively. He is underutilized. I think that objectively the Raptors give him very little screen help. They don't help him in very meaningful ways. He went from being you know, a, the 27th pick, a guy who was shooting three mid-range jump shots a game, plus a transition to a guy who obviously paired along with or a triplet of Siakam, Lowry, and Kawhi Leonard – helped lead the Raptors to a title. He hit the game-winning shot over Draymond Green. Hell of a bucket. They put him in an absurd amount of isolation. And this is where it's reading the tea leaves. I would assume this is not Pascal throwing his weight around in the organization and saying, I need isos, give me the ball. I think this is a lack of creativity on on the side of Nurse in that he does not give Siakam screen help. He's one of the highest usage isolation players in the league, and they just ask him to make something out of nothing quite often. Despite that, he has graded out as a really impressive passer at his position, one of the best in the whole league. He's a very, very impactful defender. He has a growing off-the-dribble game, both as a mid-range shooter and his pull-up. Who knows if the three-point pull-up is something that stays, but I think the catch-and-shoot three-pointer, even though it was down this year, is a very big part of his game, and I think it's there. All that considered, I think that he is an all-star level player who can punch up at all NBA value. Maybe he won't be selected because defense isn't as big a thing, but I think he can punch up at all NBA value and is very nearly worth a max contract. That's my spiel on his value. Right.
1: And I would say I agree with, like, all of that. Like, we can even, like, throw out some stats. Like, uh, I think in terms of assisted field goals, like, Siakam was, like, 99th percentile of in among bigs of not getting assisted, right? And I think, would you agree with me that this is the worst roster that Siakam has ever been on?
0: Yes. Yes, I think that's that's true.
1: Yeah. So I think in terms of being optimized, he wasn't really anywhere close to that. And on top of that, he had, like, COVID, and I think there was another injury situation with him. So his year has made him probably pretty underrated because I think he is a good player, like I said before. He's not, like, some scrub like Ben Simmons. (laughs) Oh, geez. Oh, man. No, but we're we're keeping that one for later. Uh, (laughs) I would say that Siakam is probably... Top thirty or top forty guy, most years. I think this is a disagreement with me and Samson, is that a top thirty, top forty guy is not a perennial all star. I think Tiakum is probably the rung below a perennial all star. Like maybe like uh, Al Horford esque would be my comparison because, and Al Horford was a very good player, so nobody come at me for that. But he's a player who's felt most when he's surrounded by good talent because his game isn't really suited to be this LeBron impression that the Raptors are trying to push him into or, like, Carmelo or whatever. He's not this uh, ISO creator guy, right? Even though he's – I think he's done a good job of trying to be that guy. Mm-hmm. I just don't
0: think he is that guy, right? His statistics are comparable to LeBron, Giannis, guys of that ilk. Even Tatum, they were for a little bit. Uh, his isolation numbers anyway. Like he he did his damnedest, but it's clearly that he's not going to be that guy. Yeah, but he doesn't have to be that guy. I don't think this is
1: on Siakam. I think this is more of a a Raptors thing. Is that they try to make him into that guy? I don't think he is that guy. I think if I have Pascal, I want him to be a guy that I'm getting him the ball in motion. I'm trying to get him mismatches. I'm trying to. I want. I don't want Pascal to slow down his game. I want him to be going full speed all the time because I think that's where he's at his best is when he's just turbo Pascal, you know. Mm-hmm. So even even the passing stuff that you talked about is uh, I think he's a really good passer. He even started manipul- uh, manipulating defenders this year. Uh, there might be a couple of clips on Twitter of that. Second but, level too is a yeah, big thing. Second level, he's manipulating the help. But a lot of it, he does off a standstill, so he's not really moving. Mm -hmm. He'll just be, like, set up somewhere and just, like, you know, like a a big man does, right? Because that's what he is. He's a big man. He's not a guard. So I think that Siakam is a really good player. I don't think his three-point percentage will be this bad again. If it is, that's probably a problem. Troubling, yeah. Yeah, because I think – the only way that Siakam's value is worse next year is that if the threes stay bad and his mid-range game regresses a bit, which would actually be a problem. But I think, I don't think that's going to happen. I think, I don't know what happened with the threes this year, to be honest, because even on his catch and shoot looks, he did not shoot well, even when he was wide open, which is just weird because the last two seasons, he's been an above average guy. He's not like, not shooting the leather off the ball. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he's a guy that you have to care about on the perimeter, even though uh, teams haven't in the playoffs so much. Like, I know one of the big adjustments in the Philly series was that they put him beat on Pascal and just had him help off of him. But, yeah, I think he's a really good player. I think most years he should be a threat to be an all-star. I just don't think he's a franchise player. Well, I was just going to say, I don't think he's a franchise player, and that means – if there's a trade somewhere that might lead us to a franchise player, I don't think they should not do it, and we can discuss the trades that are out there and why those aren't that, but yeah,
0: that's okay that's that's the big thing I think is the biggest disagreement is that I view him as not a perennial all star but i the, it depends on his his three point shooting basically is that I believe that he will give the value, the on-court value, in the regular season of, uh, of a near-all NBA player perennially. I do think that. And the, the wrinkle is that he hasn't shot the three-pointer really in the playoffs. Like, as you said, in the, in the title run, the, the 76ers really, they, they, they use that against the Raptors, that if he got the ball and there was a set defense, he was not comfortable just shooting it over the top, even if he had space. And a lot of players aren't. But, and then the next year you go, it's Brooklyn and Boston, and he didn't shoot the ball well either. So that's something to consider, for sure. But the big thing is that I don't believe his value right now is at a place where your return generates a player better than what he is currently. That is my big thing. And I do think that if you let him play back up to his ability where he's not injured, where he isn't coming off of a perceived bad season, that you could trade him down the road. But I think right now, I don't agree with that. Sure. But the other wrinkle to this, I think, which is really interesting, is
1: I think the last two seasons, uh, or maybe even this one, It's even a little more uh, contestable, but would you say that Kyle Lowry
0: has been our best player? I don't think Kyle was the best player in 2019, 2020. I thought it was Pascal Siakam. And in the playoffs, Kyle became the best player. And that became, because of the burden of creation, he was the only guy who got downhill off the pick and roll. But during the regular season, and I think it'd be fair to say for some people that Pascal's creation load he played above his head but I do think for the large part of that season Pascal was the best player see I would disagree with that I think I think the All-NBA
1: that year should have gone to Kyle
0: I thought it should have gone to Tatum or yeah well Kyle's not a
1: forward but
0: <laughs> you like, know, I think Tatum should have been second Pascal
1: should have been third I think uh, the one that people complain about was Chris missing out right
0: yeah uh, whatever yeah <laughs> We're not nice to Chris Middleton on this podcast. I I like Chris just fine. Chris is good. I just, I don't want to pay any attention to Chris Middleton for like the point of this conversation. But we we disagree there then that I thought Pascal was the best player in 2019-20 and you think it was Kyle Lowry. Yeah. Well, I
1: think that's another big thing because it seems, it seems very murky that he is back next year. Uh, mm-hmm. Kyle is so it leaves the Raptors in a pretty interesting position because Kyle I think for the better part of a decade has been like a top 10 top 20 guy like pretty much every year and mm-hmm. he's been the franchise player so if they lose him or even if they bring him back and he's just not as good we already saw some regression from him this year i was just being old which happens unfortunately is that what what do you do when you lose Kyle is Siakam, Fred and OG good enough to build around or do you want to take those three do you think that one of them will maybe two of them will be all NBA guys because that's what you need to be a contender is like more or less two all NBA guys if you want to get really general I know there's like some specific teams that didn't have that, but it's pretty unlikely. So you need two all NBA guys. I think Siakam is, he might make another all NBA team. I wouldn't be too shocked if he had a great year and he did, but he's not a guy I think is perennially in that conversation. Mm -hmm. I think Siakam is also in his prime right now. I don't think he's going to make a major leap. I think. He is who he is right now, which is a really good player, and considering his story and where he started from, that's an amazing accomplishment. But I think Siakam is in his prime right now. What we have now is prime Pascal and probably prime Van Vliet. I don't think OG is quite there yet. So you have prime Fred, prime Pascal, and now the decision you have is what's next. And moving up is interesting because now – the paths that open up with having the number four pick instead of just number eight or number seven or whatever are slightly, you have more paths you can go now. So that is the the most interesting question to me is what the Raptors choose to do with the remaining core.
0: Yes. And so basically the holdup for me, right, is that I think getting the number four pick actually granted the Raptors time to evaluate because it added to their ceiling. Because the thing you can do, honestly, is that this rookie scale contract is very much in line with how Siakam, Fred, and OG are signed onto this team. You can get most of this players, whoever it is, their rookie scale contract in while evaluating the rising or lowering uh, stock of Pascal, Fred, and OG. I do agree with your premise that the Raptors, that, that triplet of players, that's not good enough to do it. But I think if you hit on a special player and any one of Suggs, Green, Mobley, or Cade could be special enough to really become close to an all-NBA level player on their rookie scale, then Pascal, Fred, and OG are the incubator They are the supporting cast or maybe a more egalitarian team that does get you closer to contender status. And I think given the current, you know, trend or rate that Pascal Siakam has seen, I do think you give him a chance to recoup some of his value on the open market. And you see how he jives with the rest of the team and with this player. That's, that's my big thing is that, Getting the number four pick, I don't think necessitates that the Raptors do anything. I think it actually granted them the ability to be patient. And when you're allowed to be patient, as we've seen a lot of front offices weren't allowed to be, they make bad decisions and they have to trade players who are currently undervalued. And what we see with teams in strong positions is that they do get to trade players when they're at their highest possible value. And they do get to run that kind of, it's more in baseball But it's once that guy comes up from the minor leagues, then you trade the guy who is occupying the position. The Raptors, I think, have a chance to wait and to see what develops, be it you know, Pascal Siakam, maybe he is more optimized next year after he comes back from injury. Maybe he does bump up that value. And maybe, just a thought, but the package you could have traded for now is suddenly much better because Pascal is already at a very low value relative to what he should be at. And then the other thing too, right, is that maybe if Pascal plays really well, you can trade for a star with whoever you draft right now and Pascal. That could be enough. And it could be a very, very impressive star. Luca, somebody like that, if they come up in the trade market. I just think the Raptors are doing themselves a disservice by doing that. And then the rebuilding thing, I struggled to see a package where you get a player better than Siakam. Uh, you get even if you get like two picks plus Wiseman. I really struggle to see seven fourteen and Wiseman. Any one of those guys getting to the level that Siakam is at, for example. Yep, uh, I think I agree with your premise there, which is that
1: maybe this core deserves more time, and like you know, not like the Tampa weirdness because that's the big thing here: is that how much did uh, Tampa De- Tampa Bay ruin the season? But it's a very interesting question. I think if we talk about the Warriors package, that is probably is too too little to be worth the Raptors to pull the trigger, right? Because I think as someone who spends a lot of time with the draft, I think it's often overrated how much value there is in a draft pick. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at the average seventh pick, how many of them are even starters in this league, right? Totally, they, yeah. Yeah. And then even you throw in fourteen, and you add like a couple, whatever. uh, You add like Wiggins and Wiseman. I think Wiggins is kind of underrated at this point, but he is totally. He's, I think I'd say he's like a good. uh, He's like a starter level player right now, right? Like you're starting Wiggins, it's it's fine. A plus starter, probably too. Yeah, in the right context, he's a plus starter. Mm -hmm. Which I think the Warriors have for him, but yeah. I think if you have Wiggins, the thing with that trade is that I don't think the compensation upside-wise is enough. So you would need a trade that gives you more upside. So let's say that let's say that Evan Mobley falls to number three. And then you get a call from the Cleveland Cavaliers that, oh, okay. If you give us if you give us number four in Pascal, we'll give you number three in Colin Sexton. Is that a deal that
0: You would be interested in. That's that's really interesting, but I don't think I would do that. If that makes sense, I think that the cost of trading up for one position has never been that high. Which is why I threw in uh, Sexton to keep it interesting. Right, totally. (laughs) But but even with Sexton, I just think the disparity between Pascal and Sexton it's still much higher than because that's like as you're saying that with you know i think i think that's your premise right is finding the talent that sits at the top end of the league and there's yep. a bunch of guys from player number 30 to player number 70 who are so interchangeable as long as you have the top guy yep. i think that sexton has basically no chance and has to work really hard and maximize a bunch of things to even get to 70 for example and like, he has to shoot really well to get there. It, his defense has to improve a bunch. All those, all those types of things. He's a valuable player. I like Sexton. But I think the disparity between impact as far as Pascal and Sexton just is too much as far as I'm concerned to even to broach that. Fair enough. What
1: if you added uh, Larry
0: Nance? That's really interesting to me. <laughs> And then so so this is where that on its face seems like a good trade, right? But then I'm wondering, is Larry Nance on the team when Sexton and Mobley are like are on their timeline, the optimized, now the Raptors, they've done it, they've retooled or rebuilded, whichever you prefer. Now now they're on their way. Or is Larry Nance value for The in between years right like that that's what i don't understand is are are you because he's on a he's just on a different path and then you have to wonder about what his contract looks like basically which is and then you have to wonder about og and fred who are very very good in the context of a winning team because not only are they good and scalable but they're really affordable and so the raptors are currently built with how they're you know, the, the structure of their contracts to be a good team. And that's why, that's why I think you wait on Siakam because I think it's more likely that Siakam recoups some of that value and you trade into a spot where you're getting a superstar or you, you wait for number four and you reassess as a team that has like culture and that kind of stuff as you move along. Heat culture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If that, think- if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it does. I think the logic that I'm getting at
1: there is that if Siakam is a top 30-40 guy and you can bring in a guy like Nance to approximate some of his impact because he does a lot of the same things, Mm -hmm. just not as well, and then you add more upside to the team, in the long run, would that be worth the
0: downscale in the short term? I don't think so. Not not in this specific context, not with sexton and what what about just
1: in a more general sense, like you're adding a young guy some picks and you're adding like like let's say two top one hundred one hundred fifty players
0: in Siakam's place No, I don't because i i maybe and maybe this is you know we we view those players differently, huh. but i i do I do think that you have to expect to get a player that will e- come very close to Siakam's impact and his value. I think that's that's something you just have to get back. Otherwise, w- what are you doing really, right? Because the team as is currently constructed isn't meant to just hold over. It's it's supposed to be competing. And you have a chance with this number 4 pick to compete while also kind of harboring the the future as well you get to, you get to have your cake and eat it too i think with this situation that's that's what i like about it and i think trading siakam for anything that is suboptimal moves you out of that situation and also i struggle to see the Cavs trading for pascal but also giving up nance and sexton it, like if we're i i don't know if the Cavs do that deal we're just throwing out some stuff now
1: but uh yeah
0: so, yeah, that's fair
1: i uh, I don't think I completely agree with you on that. I think we're just in different spots in terms of maybe how good the team is because after this off season, the only way they'll really have to get better is through trades, right? Assuming that Kyle is gone, we have about an odd twenty million in cap space in not a great free agency class. After that, the Raptors will be capped out for the next three years or so. So the cheap contracts make it so you don't have to enter the tax and then maybe you can match maybe some salaries or so. But if there's no cap space, does maximizing the cheap contracts really matter? And if the Raptors' best way to getting better is through a trade, it makes sense to wait for Siakam's value to rise. But there's also a chance that it doesn't rise, it stays the same. In which case I guess you're not losing much.
0: And there's I wouldn't say it's really much of a chance, but maybe Pascal's value goes lower. I, I do agree that like being capped out or like getting close to that the tax apron definitely makes sense. But it is that fundamentally I expect upward momentum for a number of players, and that right. upward momentum opens up paths. The, the paths that you couldn't see, but the paths that winning tend to open up the same way that, you know, this path was opened up by getting the fourth pick. You could have never foresaw this, but this is, they had a 33% chance. They hit on that 33%. And now the future is brighter than what you might've imagined. And I think Pascal Siakam, I really struggled to see him at a lower value because he just tore his label. You know, he's going to miss part of the, the next season and i think he is a scalable player i really do think he is so whether that becomes more valuable in the coming years whether you know his game improves which i expect it will from where it was i think that he's more valuable in his improved state and that's maybe where we disagree i think he's more valuable in his improved state to help you move and get really good pieces for the future than he is right now. That, that's fundamentally the, the, the disagreement, I think, is like, why right now? I think you're forfeiting your leverage that, with his contract, with his situation. I don't even think it's that big of a disagreement. I think that right now,
1: I think he should be available, but I don't think they should be in a rush to move him.
0: Right, everybody should always be available. Like, that's, yeah. is that if you're going to get a good offer for somebody... You take it. And that's the thing about that offer for the, the swap is Siakam, Nance, Sexton. On its face, that's pretty good for the Raptors, honestly, especially where Siakam currently is valued. But I, I don't know if the, if the Cavs would do that. You know what I mean? If, I'm, if we have a Cavs fan on here, are they willing to do that? If, the, if you have Kobe Altman or whatever, if he's still the guy running things over there, is that what you want to do? Like that's even that sounds like a really good situation for the the Cavs and the Raptors, and I'm I'm not really sure that that's what I mean. Like it doesn't. I'm not sure if that's harmonious with his current value. Is all? Yeah, for sure. Maybe maybe I view his value a little higher than
1: his reputation. I don't know. Maybe I'm overestimating how much GMs
0: get caught up in narratives, but. Yeah, it, like it's really interesting, but that's the I'm trying to view things on the same scale as the the Warriors package, for example, which yeah. seems like that Warriors package is lesser than the package you proposed that the the Cavs would give. Oh, for sure. It
1: definitely- so
0: yeah, by, by I think a considerable amount. So it's, and I think that the Warriors is probably a decent place to put the market at. It could. It, I don't know if it gets lower. It it's definitely goes a little bit higher, but I don't know to what degree. And that's, that's like this, this whole conversation is just discussing like, what is Siakam's value currently? Why would you move on from it now? That kind of stuff. And that's, that's what makes it interesting is that I don't believe there's a route with Siakam's current value to get a player equal to Siakam. And I don't know what the value is If you're not getting that player, like other than just faith in the draft and trying to create as many outcomes as possible, which some teams do, which is just, we want as many draft picks as possible. And we're going to hit on a superstar. And if you hit on anything less than a superstar, you flush it and you try again. And I don't buy into that because I think Siakam, while I agree, he's not quote unquote, that guy, he's not a superstar. I do think he's immensely valuable and somebody who you want to keep on your team unless somebody is offering you kind of a no-brainer, if that makes sense. Like, I'm not sure if the Kawhi Leonard trade comes up, and I doubt it very much, but DeMar DeRozan, for a lot of people, was not worth the max contract, and then he was the lubricant for, you know, a franchise altering trade. Is that guaranteed to come up? No. Is that likely? No. But having really good players on your team allows you mobility outside of, you know, what you're paying them. The interesting thing is that I don't even think Siakam is really overpaid. Like, Totally, yes. Yeah, he's like the
1: 30th, 35th, something like that highest paid player in the league. And I think that's pretty in line with his value. So I don't think there's really an overpayment going on here. I think that's a really unfair criticism of any player, really, to be honest, is that they're overpaid. Which I understand where it comes from. It just kind of feels weird to be
0: counting players' pockets like that. I don't know. That's one hundred percent. I will. Yeah. I said this with Kristaps Porzingis. I will only count your pockets if you have a rape allegation out against you. Otherwise, I mean, who cares? And that, like, that's the thing, right? Is that's what that's why they traded Norm Powell. Is because they were getting ready to count pockets and that kind of thing. And you and I don't really have to entertain that because we're not making those decisions. We can just kind of be happy that these players are getting paid but relative to you know his status in the league that pascal is getting paid the appropriate amount now is there a conversation about you like if you want to win a championship you don't want a guy who's worth the max you want a guy who's significantly underpaid on the max that's the conversation basically which maybe og will be that guy <laughs> The uh, <laughs> Who knows? We're, we're not going into that, probably. But
1: the other interesting part of this whole conversation, I think, is uh, the Nick Nurse disagreement right. with Siakam, which I don't know how real that is, but there's definitely a realness to it. like The amount that became public means that it was probably really bad behind closed doors. And that's maybe where they can't be patient is that that might force them to make a
0: decision, which what's your perspective on that? I I think that is a variable and a fair one to apply. Uh, I I would really, really try not to let it affect anything else. And of course, I'm sure Pascal and Nurse understand that. I'm not sure if they've squashed it at this point. I'm not sure if they're okay with going forward as like being cold towards each other, which a lot of, like a lot of players, a lot of relationships are comfortable with that. You know what I mean? Like you see players who really dislike each other, who still play basketball the right way and still pass to each other and still recognize when the other is open on the court, still run two man actions, all that kind of stuff. And professionals, you know? Yeah. And while I do, you and I, probably both think Nick Nurse has subscribed a little bit to his rock star coach persona. A little too much. Yeah, that appears to be a thing. But this is, you know, armchair psychology. I'm more comfortable doing it to a coach than I'm a player, to be honest, but still super uncomfortable. I think that uh, I can't speak to any of that, what's going on. But I think you bringing up that it appears to be a thing, that's fair. Because it does appear to be a thing. Whether they squash it or not, I'm relying on the organization and the, the two individuals' ability to not let it destabilize anything else. And maybe it did for a moment in the COVID Tampa season, but I don't expect it to going forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think expecting them to uh, not make it like a my way or the highway type thing is also entirely fair. And and if one of them does, that is a problem. And you do have to evaluate based on that. But I don't think we can right now. Although I think in most situations, you'd pick the player, not the coach. Totally. I think, yeah. yeah. Especially, yeah, and who knows if that's happening with Siakam or with other players. That's been a point of contention with some members of media and how Nurse handles his commentary on other players is this – like he'll openly lament about these players, and I don't know what precedence there is that that's valuable, of course, like Raptors' media last year, and like Raptors' fans were like, "Oh yeah, like this is awesome i I was never in that boat i I don't know why everybody liked that he would just come like out somebody publicly and berate them, and then they play better i I really like. <laughs> And- negative affirmation does not really seem to be like the way to do things. And I I don't know if there's correlation between any of the, those things, like with William Lou and what he said about Chris Boucher. And then people start saying like, oh yeah, like William Lou got Chris Boucher going. I don't think that's the case. I think that's just people like talking. So yeah, yeah I don't agree with a few things that a nurse does. And if he's going to be that guy forever, like, then he probably won't stick around in places for that long, even if he is a super good coach. Yeah. We, we just saw that with uh, Rick Carlisle, which the recent one is, uh, I don't know if you can really blame that on Rick, but he's had his uh, moments in the past. Yeah. And getting Luca probably prolonged that that situation as well. Like he probably wouldn't have stuck around in Dallas he probably would have went on to somewhere else or did a different level of coaching or something like that. Like, Mm -hmm. I think Luca being there, actually it seemed like the disagreements between Luca and Rick actually like made it shorter, but genuinely I think it made it longer because they knew Rick was a super good coach and they wanted him to, to coach Luca and eventually that ran out. But it's, I think that was probably coming to an end anyway as a lot of the the very particular coaches do like tyloo being you know a guy who can really create a harmonious locker room out of a locker room that isn't is super impressive to me that's that's incredibly impressive yeah i think that's probably an underrated part
1: of coaching it's just managing everybody like i think at the nba level most head coaches are more or less The same in terms of like X's and O's. Like, if you're an NBA head coach, you know what you're talking about in terms of basketball. Mm -hmm. It's usually the people management that you'll see that'll set coaches apart. Like, that's something Greg Popovich has managed to do amazingly well over his extremely long tenure is just connect with his players. If that's a problem with Nurse, I think that might be an issue for the Raptors going forward, but maybe it's a little too early to focus on that.
0: Yeah, the signs are there. Yeah, like any NBA coach, it's, it's philosophy for how to play basketball because coaches share sets. Like everybody knows what everybody else is running. It's not like – it's very rare that a coach comes up with something new and everybody's like, oh, my God, can you believe? It's about the philosophy of how a team's supposed to play, what sets fit into that philosophy. And coaches differ on philosophy, but most coaches know, like every play under the sun. Like, that's Evan Gualberto, who I do a podcast with. He coaches at the high school level and with um, junior NBA and stuff like that. And I feel like he never misses. So I'm like, well, what the hell? A head coach in the NBA, they must know everything on God's green earth. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's a an important distinction. You want to walk through the rest of the trades and kind of uh, talk about it? Yeah, sure. We can just do like a quick little overview on why they're terrible or why they're good. <laughs> What well, it's it's hard to come up with trades, so I don't I don't begrudge you. But okay, so these are these are trades Goose came up with. I assigned him this and you know he had a short amount of time, like basically just a day to do it. So don't uh I swear to God, listener, if you go into the comments and you say, Oh, these trades are so dumb, we don't care. Okay. We're just trying to talk about some stuff to get into some hypotheticals. Okay, so Damian Lillard plus I'm assuming one of Covington. Or Yusuf Nurkic, yeah. On the other side, Siakam, Boucher, number four, and then plus extras. Did you have any idea what extras was going to be? Is this just salary filler, or is this draft capital just, in your just mind? Like, like picks or like uh, Malachi, maybe. <laughs> you, you, you know the extras that
1: uh, they get people going. You know, I was like, oh, I'm yeah. gonna <laughs> sit here and list every single pick. But yeah, uh, so if we're looking to maximize, then why not get someone better? Right. And Lillard's situation was kind of—I don't know—if it still seems pretty much in flux. So, if you can get him, and then maybe like a a decent player, like this is kind of similar to the Kawhi
0: trade, I think, but it'll probably cost more. So yeah, I think Cov instead of Nurk is—I—I I really don't think you get Nurkic too, because there there's a world. And there was a year where Nurkic started to approach like top 25 player impact. If you got Nurk along with Dame, you're stealing the whole thing. Like the, the NBA will celebrate you endlessly for robbing the franchise that just hired Chauncey Billups, I think. So it, it would. I think that would be an absolute steal. To be, to be fair to me, Nurkic went on uh, some European
1: – Thing and said that if Dame is getting traded, he's gonna ask how to
0: So, <laughs> <laughs> well, so, hey, what other what other European insider info do you have for us? Give us well, the the goods. The the goods. I don't know. He said something
1: similar. I might just be totally butchering it, but Nurk has been very pro Dame and anti Blazers. So, hell yeah. So if he wants, maybe you know. Okay, something to consider. Well, I, here, I got I got a word for word. Okay. Here's an Urkic. As far as I know, the man stays there, but if he goes, then I leave Portland as well. My opinion is that it would be stupid
0: to let such a loyal man as Lillard go. If he was saying man's instead, this would be like <laughs> classic Toronto. He would have exactly. been fitting in right away. Okay. That's so my, and on the other side, Siak and Boucher plus number four plus extras. Uh, it's just hypothetical, so it doesn't really matter. I don't think that the the Blazers do that. It might not be the best package, but yeah. I think it's a really good one. Yep, yeah, I do, I do agree. I think that I, I do like that you put Boucher in a couple of these packages because I do think Boucher is a way for the Raptors to take advantage of the leverage of a certain player. I think that Boucher, as opposed to Siakam, is sitting at probably close to his highest possible value. And I think that... He's a guy who you could, the same way that they turned Grievous Vasquez into Norman Powell and OG Ananobi, maybe you're not hitting the same type of heights, but I think Boucher is a player who you could move in a similar fashion. So I like that you included him in this stuff, whether he's traded alongside Siakam in an absolute blockbuster that shocks us or whether it's like a shrewd move. I think Boucher is somebody to look at, yeah. Okay, um, we talked about Larry Nance and Colin Sexton, so we'll kind of walk over that. I'll say I don't think the Blazers do it because I think if they do trade Lillard, they're going super young instead of retooling. And that's just, I think that they would be in a position to do that. But, okay, John Collins, Cam Reddish, extras for Pascal. This is a really interesting one because it really depends what a person thinks about Cam, and I like Cam a lot. So what was your thinking here? Um, Also on the Cam wagon. But, yeah, uh, the
1: thing here was that John Collins can give you, like, in an optimized situation, he might be a top 50 guy. Uh, Besides that, he's probably, like, a top 100 or so guy. You know, he's, like, a good player. You can kind of approximate Pascal's production in a different way. And he's younger. You have some upside there. You have some upside with Reddish, who's currently just a good defender and not much else. But there's
0: a lot to like with Cam. And then extras would be like a pick or two or, you know, extras. If it's a pick or two, I think that's really interesting because, you know, it depends who the Raptors draft. But basically from Pascal to John Collins, what you're losing is Fred Van Vliet's off-ball shooting to some degree because of the drop-off in John Collins' playmaking relative to Pascal's but you are gaining more pick-and-roll viability because Collins is a, a better pick-and-roll player than Pascal just because he's used in that more often. They don't use Pascal as a screener for whatever goddamn reason. And yeah, Cam Reddish, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know how we were talking about Andrew Wiggins as a plus starter in the right, the right situation. I, I can quite easily see Cam Reddish in that situation. Yeah. Like I can, I can see that, that future for him maybe not the superstar future that some see but that also i don't see the the hawks making that trade either but especially since they're full on contender status now why would they want an injured player and yeah that that type of thing there but that's that's a really interesting one for me okay miles turner plus one of lavert or brogdon obviously i think it came out today that indiana is open to trading brogdon in the past, we've seen they're open to trading Miles Turner. What do you make of Miles plus Brogden or Levert? Well, this one would be there's not really too much upside here.
1: It's just mm-hmm. being deeper. So it's uh, I think one of the problems with the Raptors was depth, because this season they had like what five six good players on any given night. Here you would be turning one good player into two, which Maybe in a trade later that might be worth, or maybe this makes you a better team now, or maybe. Do you think that would? This is why I put this in there because I wanted to see what you think is. uh Do you think if, do you think Miles plus one of LaFert or Brogden could, in some provide more impact
0: than Pascal? Oh, that's yeah. I, given the limitations on the Raptors roster, I do but I think that's more about fit than value, if that makes sense. So is this a trade that you would consider or not? Hmm. I do like Levert a lot, but I would say no to this trade. Fair enough. So yeah, this one is uh, still
1: trying to win now. It's just Mm -hmm. in a different way. All right.
0: And then do we have another one? Yeah, D'Lo and Jaden McDaniels plus Picks. Are these are these high quality picks or what are you thinking for that? Yeah, the the problem here is that
1: I don't think they would give up Anthony Edwards, which is the guy I wanted. Right. <laughs> and I, I was going through Pascal destinations. So I was like, oh, Minnesota would be a great one. So
0: him and Cat would be awesome. Exactly. Just like a perfect fit. That's basketball nirvana. I think. So this one might be more of a rebuilding
1: type thing, which it's, it's one of the last trades for a reason. I was kind of running out of ideas. So I mm-hmm. <laughs> think you bring in Dilo to, to, uh, to replace Kyle. You bring in McDaniels as a uh, defender, and then you have some picks and some, maybe even some more young players
0: or just extras, and then kind of take a little bit of a step back while trying to
1: take out more.
0: The McDaniels, the guy they missed out, one pick. I bet they would have picked them too if he would have fell, he, he has some real Raptors vibes on him. But I also, D'Lo is a really interesting one because he's also a guy whose value is erratic to a lot of people too. Mm-hmm. And D'Lo, I would really like him on a, a team next to a super creator. I really like D'Lo in second side action. And I really like him carrying the ball on occasional like, bringing up the floor, transition opportunities, drag screens, pulling up. The same way that CJ in certain certain games can really kill teams, especially in the playoffs, if Dame is being doubled. Like CJ as the release valve is really high quality stuff. I think D'Lo has a future like that. It just depends about who he gets paired with. And I don't think that happens with the Raptors. So I don't like him in the context of the Raptors. So I would say no to this. What if the Raptors
1: have Evan Mobley?
0: Still, still no. I think.
1: But he, at least he gives you a pick and roll guy to pair them up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I.
0: I do, but yeah, and this I, I could like say no to this one too. <laughs> but I really like D'Lo's game. Like I just love watching D'Angelo Russell. So if D' if D'Lo was on the Raptors, I would have to. Even though he's, I think, a much worse player than Pascal. Yeah. And I, I, I think I rate D'Lo higher than most people too. But I would selfishly be like, oh, man, very excited to watch a lot of D'Lo. But I can't imagine how ruthless the fans would be because D'Lo can give you some really abysmal stuff sometimes. Him and Fred would be interesting. Oh, (laughs) buddy, that would just be – oh, I can't imagine, like, the amount of dribbling the air out of the ball. Who needs layups. Yeah. (laughs) Who needs layups? Who needs free throws? And it would be funny because Fred – initiates so much contact, but never gets to the line. And D'Lo is like, oh, yeah, just don't touch me. Please, for the love of God, don't touch me. Very interesting. At at least D'Lo and Gary would be a very fun fashion duo. Gary's overrated for fashion. Can we we agree on that? Yeah, I think a little. I think uh, uh, the babes... He's a hottie. For me. Like, Gary's a hottie, so people act like he dresses better than he does. But he... mm, He dresses okay. He's he's a rich man who has nice clothes. That's what I think, and he has great tattoos. Yes, I would question his taste in brands, actually, but he does have great tattoos. Okay, so what brands is he missing on? I'm just not. I'm just not here for the babe stuff. Like he he really overdoes it too. I don't. I don't. I don't know.
1: I I even speculated that maybe they're paying him like (laughs) (laughs) as.
0: Too much shark going on. I'm surprised he doesn't zip it up all the way to the top, like 2015 Instagram, like that type of stuff. You know yeah. what I mean? That's what he reminds me of. is 2015. He he was he was men's fashion before Fear of God came in, and <laughs> the, like Fear of God really changed like a lot of the aesthetic, and like it, you know, taking from that 80s rocker stuff, but that maximalist bape. He does lean too far that way. And yeah, I don't like it that much either. But he's, you know, he's cool as hell. He's a handsome fella. So yeah. keep doing your thing, Gary. I think we've we've hit the end of the road for the, the trades. Yes. Yeah. As, as I might have expected, we did too much agreeing uh, <laughs> to make this a, a debate. But I, I know there's a lot of people who really enjoy you and really enjoy me. So hopefully this was just uh, a look into how we think about the game, and hopefully enough funny quips that uh, it was a worthwhile listen, if that makes sense. Yep. Didn't even have to use my steel chair. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, there, is there any other points that you feel like uh, you, you want to touch on before, before we kind of table it, leave it? But do you want to talk about the Scotty Barnes rumors? Sure, or- sure. Let's, get- sure. let's,
1: let's do Scotty Barnes. What are your thoughts? Great. So uh, one of the other rumors from the combine that have had Raptors fans in a tizzy is that they really like uh, Scotty Barnes. at no- Doctor, no- by yeah. the way. Yeah, he is uh, custom built to be a Raptors prospect, which is why it's kind of scary for me because <laughs> mm-hmm. I really like Scotty and he's a, a really awesome prospect. Don't get me wrong. It's just if we're doing what Samson mentioned here which is taking number four, adding him to the current core, and hoping that number four can enhance that core. I don't think Scottie is the guy to be to do that because there is a lot of overlap here. Because I don't know if you can have too many versatile defenders, but I don't think you can. But that's his main positive is that he's this guy that's defending one to four at a high level, can play some five. I don't think he's... You can play five if you're trying to switch everything, but I don't know if you want to switch everything a lot, I think. Philosophically, for me, I don't want to switch everything all the time, so I'm not trying to play him at the five all the time. And he's a great passer, but a lot of what he does is pretty – is a lot of what Pascal does. And Mm -hmm. there's already a lot of overlap between Pascal and OG, especially offensively. I think we saw that a little bit as they gave OG more touches is that they kind of like to operate out of the same. Type of spot. So if you add a third guy there, I don't know if that can really work. It, Scotty makes sense if you you're trading Pascal to be honest. But yeah. If you're not trading Pascal, if you're keeping him, you're trying to compete for the next three or four years or or their rookie contract. I don't think he's the guy, unless you're just totally out on Suggs or Green being a good offensive player.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. You bring up the overlap is that offensively they put OG. And Pascal in a lot of similar situations. And one of the biggest differentiators between the two is Pascal's grab and go game. And then they bring in Scotty Barnes, who really has a grab and go game. It's just like and since- offensive, yeah, limited offensive players having a bunch of overlap. That's what you worry about. You don't worry about KD, Harden, and Kyrie and like who's gonna have the ball. But if there's guys who only work in similar contexts and you're like, we're just running this, that's a problem. Exactly. And since this is the
1: Nick Nurse slander pod, uh, he's not not the guy that I trust to figure it out either. So I don't know. I I wouldn't like that unless they do move Pascal. I'd just rather take Suggs or Green or whichever one of the top four is left and just
0: deal with that. But that's just my opinion. Scotty Barnes, 45 extended, isolation. Make it happen, pal. We need some advantage creation, please, buddy. Make it happen. Uh do you have any any fashion takes before we get out of here? Anything else? Uh and, and you know what? If if you if you want to, if the the rumors keep flying, we can do the definitive uh Scotty Barnes podcast if it continues to keep buzzing, if you're interested. I wouldn't mind. We can look okay. into that. Yeah. Okay. And uh any any other fashion takes before we get out of here? Fashion takes is uh I don't know.
1: Uh short shorts. Cool. <laughs>
0: short I am, shorts are cool. Short shorts are cool. I'm on Team OG. Well, you know where I stand. I'm yes. a huge proponent of the short short movement. And uh, to the point where people called me gay on Twitter. <laughs> and I was like, okay.
1: Short shorts, uh, I think, in a lot of contexts, require uh,
0: more fashion positive people. I, I think so too. And uh, fashion positive is seen as an effeminate feature. So uh, we yes. still got work to do in the dialogue. And you know what? I'm willing for the short, short movement to have strangers on the internet call me gay. I don't <laughs> care. I do it. to do that anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay, Goose, before we get out of here, is there anything you want to say as far as plugging? Uh, some people plug their work. Some people plug a book. Uh, ben Pfeiffer plugged positive mental health messaging. Uh, do you have anything in mind? That's good. That's good. Positive mental health message. Uh, yeah, I would say positive
1: messaging. Uh, don't get too mad at me for this. And <laughs> it was purely hypothetical, I swear. And yeah, just uh, if you like my my content, just follow me on Twitter and then we can, uh, we can have more of me
0: and more of Samson too. So that's it that's a quote you can have more of me end quote hoop goose yeah. um, it'll be linked in the in the podcast if, you, if that's how you're listening to it you can just click his name but if not it is quite literally how it's spelled hoop goose goose thank you so much for coming on man it's been an absolute blast and thank you for giving so much time oh absolutely it's always a pleasure okay brother I'll let you go listener thanks for tuning in i hope you enjoyed this it's kind of been a marathon maybe the longest podcast i've ever done for raptors republic and uh yeah two hours yeah but uh whether you got into it in the morning or at night have a blessed day and goodbye